Good morning. Welcome to all you joining us here in person. Welcome to all of you joining us online. Glad you're uh, participating that way this morning. I have a question I want to begin the message with this morning for you to consider. Have you ever felt inadequately equipped to handle a situation? Anybody relate to that question? Have you ever felt inadequately equipped to handle a situation? Man, I've... I think that's become kind of my life motto. <laughs> it's like, you know, the last few years, is I'm just not equipped to handle some of the stuff that's come in our direction. Um, I remember my first day when I, I uh, went to work at 3M. I graduated from the University of Minnesota with a mechanical engineering degree. I had an intern at Rosebond Engineering. I had an intern at FMC, so I kind of had some practical experience. I go to this big, huge facility in downtown St. Paul, right? And I, first of all, it was very difficult to find my way to the area that I was working at. And I remember sitting down and the boss came out and said, there you go, gave me 13 folders and walked away. I had no idea what to do. I've shared this story before. I was so inadequately prepared for that moment. I remember sitting there thinking, I don't know what to do. And I remember asking the guy next to me, where's the bathroom? Where do I get a pencil? Where is this place where the shop's at? You know, all these fun. And I had to become really bold and just ask and ask and ask. And I didn't begin with a a big splash there. I began my career in small little ways. Isn't that how life works frequently? Then I uh, became a minister of Christ and and I I moved from, I started here as an assistant and uh, I felt called to to Northwest North Dakota to uh, Williston. I remember my first week of going to Williston as, as their lead pastor. Um, that was a scary endeavor in and of itself. But that very first week, tragedy struck. And I still remember this. It just broke my heart. One of our rancher farmers got wrapped up in his baler and was, was killed. And I got the call. It was late at night. And I go out there, and there stands his widow. She's like 35, and they got four girls. They were all my kid's age. And I remember standing and going, I didn't sign up for this. I don't even know what to say. I was so heartbroken for them and so, so sad for what just took place. And she just was, the, the, the widow was devastated. I don't know how else to say it. She's just devastated. And I don't do this very frequently. I'm not a, a real crier. <laughs> I'll get passionate and I'll get emotional, but I don't cry at movies or anything like that uh, that I'll let anybody see. Amen. And I remember calling Isaac the next day, um, and I think he thought I was having a breakdown. <laughs> he was our, our uh, district superintendent at the time, and I just broke down and cried. I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say, you know? And I began to learn something there again in that, in that situation was, it wasn't the big thing I could do. It was just caring for them and praying for them, being there for them, being consistent. And I had prayed for those folks a lot. And I uh, cared about them a lot. Have you ever been in a situation like this where you feel just inadequately prepared for what's coming your direction? This is what we're going to look in today some, okay? We're going to look into this question a bit. We're on this new series, as Pastor Ben mentioned. We began the last week with Pastor Aaron. We're looking at God's design for a well-lived life. Um, Man, Aaron did a great job of setting this series up. So if you missed last week, it's like a foundational message to what we're 
uh, going to explore for the next few weeks. I would highly recommend you go to our website and pull up that message on the media section of our webpage and listen to his message and get filled in. Um, what we're going to do for the next several weeks is to look into a few of the stories, the illustrations, and the miracles that Jesus performed in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and a little bit into John. And these teachings, these major teachings of Jesus Christ, man, they just turn your world upside down. And they define for us how to live uh, this, this, this life rightly that we're called to live. Um, they, def- they define what a, a life well lived is, is really all about. Um, by the way, I do a lot of reflecting anymore. I don't know about you. As you get older, you reflect more. And I, I've been thinking a lot lately that uh, I never really fully appreciated the work that Christ has been doing in my life and will continue to do in my life like I have now. I have this ability to look in the rearview mirror and I have this ability to see things like I, I couldn't understand them before. And, and I, I look back and I think sometimes my life is so fundamentally different so different in every category that because I follow Christ that I wouldn't have understood as a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old or maybe even a four-year-old. But now I begin to look back and say, man, it's worth it all. Amen? And I'm so glad. Best decision I ever made in my life was to give my life to Jesus Christ, to follow hard after him and, and spend my whole life uh, doing that. That, that, that. I just can't encourage you enough. That even if you don't see it now, someday you will see it. And someday you'll go, thank you, Jesus just for living a life in you that's been lived well. Um, sometimes, like my experience at 3M or my experience at Williston, we just hardly know where to start. Amen? Do you ever feel like that? I just don't even know what to start, do next. Today, we're going to see that Jesus works in small acts of life, and every single one of us can begin there in small ways of sacrifice, of service, of obedience. And we can often just begin there, and then we, I say, step into the shadow of Jesus, so to speak, and big things begin to unfold that we really don't deserve or really can't even expect. Small acts on our part can create a big splash, and Jesus multiplies, I think, our feeble offerings to him. Um, Would you agree with me in this thought, Jesus' teachings change the world? Amen? No, I use that word amen probably too much. But the word amen means, may it be so, Lord. It means um, hearty approval. It means solemn ratification. So when we say amen, we're saying, may it be so. I give you my hearty approval. So when I say something like, did the teachings of Jesus change the world? And you say amen, you're saying, I heartily approve. Amen? Thank you. One of Jesus' more lengthy teachings in the New Testament is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And this teaching begins with what is called the Beatitudes. And Beatitude just simply means supreme blessedness. And we're going to look at the first Beatitude today in this message. And the reason I'm doing that is it picks up where Aaron left off last week. Uh, Last week, Aaron talked about how Jesus was brought into the desert and was tempted. And then after that, he went to Nazareth, went to synagogue. And there he picked up the scroll and they began to read from it. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Um, um, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I'm going to stop right there. Because that's what we're going to pick up. What's meant by the poor? Now, he touched on this a little bit last week. It's not poor financially. It's, it's a clarification of our status 
in our soul, poor of the soul, poor in the spirit. I would define it this way, a poverty of the soul, a sense of inadequacy. Jesus saying, blessed are you if you feel inadequate. Does that sound like something we would hear today in our culture? Hey, great, you know you're inadequate. How many hear that? Who's going to go to that seminar? Let's go to the seminar and learn that we're inadequate. Amen? Anybody go to that seminar? No, we don't want to hear that. Jesus is saying, if you're going to live life well, if you're going to have this well-lived life, blessed are you if you're inadequate and you admit it. (laughs) It doesn't make sense, but most of Christ's teachings don't make sense, humanly speaking. Um, What it means is that we have to understand that there has to be this total dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Let me just read this first beatitude to you, this supreme blessedness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I love this beatitude because it speaks to me personally. It's something that for a long time in my life, I think I've tried to live out. It's one that impacted me as a young believer some 40, 50 years ago and just totally changed the way I think and the way I interact uh, with the Lord and with other, other people. Jesus came to minister to the poor in spirit. You're blessed if you realize I'm inadequate in myself. I desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about me. It's not about my sufficiency. It's not about my self-reliance. It's all about being reliant upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are you if you figured that out. Amen. You're a step up in life. In fact, this brings us to this big thought today. A first step towards being fully satisfied in life to having a life well lived is to realize your spiritual helplessness. Your outer dependency upon Christ, your, your desperate need of him. Now, here's how I came up with this thought um, from this beatitude. Blessed means fully satisfied. So if you, when you read the word blessed are the poor in spirit, it means fully satisfied are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means realization of your spiritual helplessness. So fully satisfied is the one who realizes their spiritual helplessness. For theirs, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You get to enter into this this kingdom um, kind of reality of living. Um, Now, I don't know about you. I could be inadequate. Can you? I'm I'm not saying that to be smart, Alec, or anything, or even tongue-in-cheek. Can you readily admit I'm inadequate? As a person, yeah, we all can. This, man, this is an open-door invitation, Amen. It's what, what the Lord Jesus is saying is, listen, you're going to enter into the kingdom of God when you realize you can't do it on your own. That you're inadequate and helpless and desperately in need of Jesus Christ. I can do that. Can you do that? Every one of us can experience supreme blessedness by simply acknowledging our helplessness before God and saying, Jesus, I desperately need you. Amen? You know, that's what I love about the gospel of Christ. It's not hard. Now, I don't have to be self-sufficient. I don't have to be smart. I don't have to figure everything out. I just have to admit I don't have everything figured out. And I have to, in a helpless realization, come to Christ. So here's a perspective then. Out of poverty, give to God what you have for his sacred use. Become a living sacrifice in contrast to relying on self-sufficiency. Again, can we all do this? God never says to me, give you something that you don't have. He says, what I want is you. I want what you have. Can we not all do that? 
see, this is thinking differently. Jesus came and by his teachings turned our world upside down. So listen to Romans 12.1. This is great scripture. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So living sacrifice implies this. There's this ongoing relational dynamic with God where we're dependent upon him and we're living for him and we're living a life that's trying to please him. And it's this ongoing kind of interactive uh, experience where we're willing to give and be used for his purposes and for his glory. And it's usually not something big. It's usually things that are small. It's usually small acts of obedience, a small acts of sacrifice, small acts of service. Uh, it's usually uh, something small. And then God takes that small thing that we offer to him and he uses it in a powerful and profound way in our, in our lives. So out of our poverty, we're to give to God what we have for his sacred use. What I love about the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, well, there's many things, but one of the things that really is striking to me is that he, he gives us these powerful teachings like the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins with the Beatitudes. And then, as his ministry unfolds, frequently he fleshes out those principles and these great truths with some kind of profound illustration or a miracle. And what we're going to do today is look at this poor and spirit concept by using a miracle that Christ performed in the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to see how that miracle really was a fleshing out of what it means to be poor in spirit for his disciples. There's a teaching behind the miracle that oftentimes we can just read through because the miracle just is kind of like it grabs a hold of you and you go, wow. But, 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 but what really is profound to me is this deep teaching that Christ was imparting to his disciples who were behind the scenes of the miracle, so to speak, and experiencing some things uh, firsthand. Um, and so this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you have to go to all four Gospels to get all the insight and the little nuances uh, behind uh, the, the miracle in the background. For instance, um, before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus heard in one of the gospel accounts that John the Baptist had been beheaded. So his beloved relative, his forerunner, is now dead. That would shake your world a little bit, right? Amen? So Jesus, hearing this, withdrew to a solitary place. But the crowds were told, followed him. He was so popular, they followed him. Yet Jesus welcomed them. That to me, I just, I, 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 I read this thing a multiple number of times. I never really thought about that. He just lost John the Baptist. He's beheaded. He wants to go to a solitary place. Why? Probably to be with God and to grieve a bit. Amen? When you lose someone significant in your life, you just want to grieve. You just want to have that moment. Yet the crowd followed him and were told he welcomed them. So I thought, in the pain of loss... Christ still ministered to the pain of those who were lost. It was, it's just, it's kind of profound. That's, that's our Jesus. I'm not talking on that today, what I just shared with you. But I just can't help but see it in the story. It's so profound. What I want to do is zoom in on the teaching process that Jesus, Jesus brings his disciples to through, during this feeding of the 5,000. Um, it just reinforces to you and I that we have to be people who are poor in spirit. We have to be people who are poor in spirit. Now, before this miracle took place, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples. They were anointed with power. They, went, they healed. They proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. They had great success. 
It was really cool. They're returning after being sent out to Jesus at this time of going to this solitary place, okay? You get in the picture here? So they're probably coming back what? Pretty jazzed. Pretty pumped up. Maybe a little bit heady. They just seen the power of God unleashed in their life. Things were starting to, to, to move. They're probably thinking, oh, the kingdom of God is coming. We're part of this. And, and they're probably thinking pretty highly of themselves. Elsewhere in the Bible, other than what we just read here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out the 72 before the towns that he was going to go minister to. And he, and he says, prepare them for my coming. And they went out and they came back with great joy, we're told. And they were saying, even the demons submit to us in your name. What they're saying is, cool, right? This is really great stuff, Jesus. Even the demons are submitting to us. Pretty heady stuff. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rather rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What are you guys doing? What are you thinking here? He's kind of rebuking them mildly. He's saying, this isn't what this is about, getting off on a power trip. No, it's about that you're saved from your sins and you're heaven bound. That's what you rejoice in. You don't rejoice that some demon submits to you. And he's rebuking their headiness. And so the 12 return from this ministry experience that I'm sure was really, really neat. And I think they probably thought, we got it together. And Jesus is going to show them how little they have it together now with the feeding of the 5,000. He's going to show them their utter inadequacy that they truly need to be poor in spirit for him to move mightily in their lives. It's all about dependence on him, not about the experience that you could have. So I'm going to read about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. Listen to what's said here. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. Now hear this question. Hear his response. He replied, You give them something to eat. I want you to have the tension of this for just a moment. They're just returned from this really super cool ministry experience, seeing all this power of Christ unleashed, probably a little bit what? Heady, maybe a little bit full of themselves, thinking this is really cool. And now Jesus feeds 5,000, or it's going to feed 5,000, and he says to to these disciples, you feed them. Oh, boy right? They didn't have the resources to do this. They didn't know what they're doing. Exactly, amen? Of course they wouldn't know how to do this. That's the point that he's making with these disciples that were closest to him. He was saying, you need to be poor in spirit. You need to see your helplessness, and you need to see your utter dependency upon me. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread to fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciple picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So they're inadequately equipped to handle this situation. Feed thy thousand men. That is an impossible ask 
of Christ for these guys in their own self-sufficiency. Um, now, if you go to other accounts like Matthew, it says there that it was 5,000 men and, in addition, women and children. And a lot of commentaries that I read said most likely it was 10,000 people there that they fed. Not 5,000, they just counted them in. If you had the women and the children in, it's more like 10,000. In Mark's account of this uh, uh, feeding of the 5,000, they responded back with, we'd have to work for months, Jesus, <laughs> to buy all this food. What kind of language is that? Self-sufficiency language. You want us to feed 10,000 people here? No way. We'd have to work half a year, all of us, just to have enough money to do this. What kind of language is that? I can't do it. <laughs> it's almost like Jesus is saying, good. Because you kind of came back from the mission trip full of yourself probably a little bit. I want you to understand what's going on here. I want you to understand the value of being poor in spirit, of seeing yourself helpless to do this yourself. Um, they were experiencing this poor in spirit in a real way and Jesus says what do you have five loaves of bread and two fish in John's account they say but what is that for this huge crowd really five fish five uh, loaves of bread and two fish isn't going to go very far and so imagine you're there, the crowd at large that day, what did they see? They just see this miracle. They see the feeding of 5,000, 10,000 people, whatever it is. That's what they see. What do we tend to focus in on when we read the story? We see the feeding and the, the, the miracle. But Jesus is doing this profound teaching behind the scenes to the disciples. And I think that's what we're supposed to be taking away from this account as much as that God is powerful and can do miracles. His teachings turn our world upside down. And he's teaching the disciples his firsthand knowledge about what it means to be poor in spirit. If you are, you're going to be blessed. See, the principle is this. It's not about what you have. It's about your willingness to give what you have to serve God. Took the two fish and five loaves of bread. He said, okay, that's what we got. Let's start there. Amen? But Lord... What good is that going to do with 5,000 people? Lord, if we're going to feed this many people, we have to work for six, seven months. You know, just send them away. And he says, what do we have? Let's start there. Let's start with something small. And God took the two fish, five loaves of bread, and he, and he fed the multitude. Amen? I would have been amazed by 12 basketfuls left over. <laughs> Whoa! You know, two fish, five loaves of bread into 12 basketfuls? That's, that's quite something. Way small for what God wants to do in our lives. See, God takes our little and makes it much frequently. He takes our little and makes it much frequently. And I've heard this miracle taught in multiple ways. A lot of times people will get into that we serve a God of plenty. Uh, it's so much so that there's leftovers. You know, well, that's okay, interesting thought. Uh, Twelve basketfuls could represent 12 tribes of, 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 of Israel. Okay, that's interesting. You know, the takeaway for me is this. There's this really deep teaching happening with the disciples about dependency and being poor in spirit. And if you understand that, you put yourself in a blessed position and you can experience the mighty moving of God in your life. That's going on. That's like, it's like the story within the story. And here's an observation I can't help but take away from this, uh, this whole miracle. God works in the small. God seems to work in the small. Now, 
here's why I think this is important. It's good news to you and me because we can do small, amen? We can be inadequate, amen? We can be helpless, amen? Can't we all do this? Come on now, I'm not even being facetious. I'm not even making a joke. I mean it. Cannot we all be small? Can't we start there? Hey, thank you for saying amen. God works radical ways in the life of his children. And often it begins with small acts of obedience, small acts of sacrifice, small acts of service. When I was discussing this following message with Aaron, and he was talking about this well-lived life and giving the principles and, the, and, and you know, Jesus' temptation and all that, I said, I want to start with something I think has profoundly changed my life. And it's what I'm sharing with you today, that God often works mightily when we understand our inadequacy and that all we have to do is do some small things in the right direction. And God just multiplies that thing and, and does things that are amazing in our, in our lives. In fact, Jesus said this, um, kind of to illustrate this point. He said in Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 18 to 21, he says these two things. He gives these two illustrations. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So what the Lord is, is, is illustrating for us here again is this poor in spirit principle. And, he, and he's saying, listen, a mustard seed is considered in that, in that time in that community to be a very small seed. I don't know if you feed birds or anything like that. I, I don't do that. But bird seed's very small. I'm not talking about the, the sunflower seeds. The little round seeds that you would see in bird seed, that's the size of a mustard seed. It's tiny. And in Jewish culture, that was considered a tiny thing. You plant that in the ground, and it grows into about a 12-foot plant. Taller than a basketball hoop, right? Last hour, I said, even the NBA guys would have a hard time dunking on it. Nobody laughed then. They're still not laughing now. So, uh, you know, it's, just, it's, it's this huge plant that it grows into that birds perch in. God's oftentimes begins in small things. Grows into something big. Yeast. I, I make bread. I love to make bread because I love to eat it. Amen? And so uh, I make whole wheat bread and, and grind my own wheat and all that kind of thing. But I use dry yeast. Keep it refrigerated. They didn't have dry yeast back then. They didn't have refrigeration like we have. They would take one day's dough, and take a piece of that and put it into the next day's dough to pass on the yeast. And they would take this dough and then mix it up thoroughly. Can you imagine, by the way, 60 pounds of flour? Uh, that's a lot. <laughs> a fl- are, you, are you getting a picture? I mean, read that carefully. 60 pounds of flour. Have you ever tried to knead that? Woo, baby, she must have been a buff woman. Anyway, you got to knead that all together, right? And get that, and, and that little bit of yeast works in 60 pounds of, of flour. I mean, that's a huge amount uh, of bread. And Christ is making this point. Things frequently begin in the kingdom of God very small, and they become big and powerful. It's just a principle that Christ is sharing with us. And if we're going to have a well-lived life, we're going to realize oftentimes God begins in our life in a very, very small kind of way. Um, God used the small all throughout the Bible. Think about this. He started his nation Israel with a nomadic man who was very old, married to a wife who was very old when they had their kid. Amen? 
Who would ever thought it would begin that way? God chose a shepherd. His name was David. By the way, shepherds were always viewed as a low-class kind of profession people. He picked one of the lower kind of class system people, whatever you want to use, caste system people in that culture, to become what? One of the, the most renowned kings in the, in the history of Israel. Isn't that how God works? It starts with a small, insignificant, and he magnifies it. When Jesus watched people give, he wasn't impressed with those who gave out of their abundance. He said, oh, there's one, there's one. That poor widow, she gave just a few pennies out of her scarcity. She's given more than anybody else has given. Amen? It's not big, it's small. She gave what she had, and, and God, um, God noted that. Um, when he came to earth, Jesus didn't come to a rich and famous family. He didn't come to the city of kings, to Jerusalem. He came to a barn, to a manger, and he was born to a teenage girl. Began small. That's how God works. When Jesus is going to feed 5,000 men plus women and children, it begins with what? Two fish, five loaves of bread. Because that's just how our God works. He begins with the small and he, and he multiplies. And he multiplies it. We just got to understand this, this whole kind of uh, relationship. Um, God has a way of making uh, a lot out of a little in our lives. Few of us have big lives. Did anybody have a big life in here? Most of us think of ourselves as being pretty ordinary, amen? I think of myself as being very ordinary all the time. Um, and frequently, you can fall into this trap of thinking, what do I have to offer to you, God? And we can think we're so insignificant that God doesn't want to use us. That's not being poor in spirit. That's thinking like you're insignificant. <laughs> okay? Being poor in spirit means the little I have, I give to you, God, and freely offer to you for your use. And he multiplies it. Let me give you a quiz. You ready for a quiz? Anybody going to college next year? Anybody graduate? Ah, we're way, way beyond that season already. They're all gone home. Whatever. I had a few first hour. Um, but you know what? They do a lot in college as quizzes. Amen? Anybody remember those days? I used to hate that. Can you name five astronauts? Can you name one? Yeah, Gar could probably name one. I always wanted to name Buzz Lightyear, but I know I got the Buzz part right, but I know it's not Lightyear, amen? It's, it's something else. How about, can you name the last five Miss America beauty pageant winners? Has anybody watched it? Some of you watch. I, I haven't watched it for, I don't think I ever watched it. <laughs> anyway, I would have no idea who they are. Can you name one Nobel Prize winner? I can think of a couple there because I'm a little bit strange that way. Um, we don't usually think of these people. They, they, they're not what come to our mind as affecting our lives much. But think about who, 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 who's really affected your life. Let me change the quiz questions now. Can you name a teacher who impacted your life? I can. There's two of them I remember distinctly. My eighth and ninth grade year of, of, of school, I had... Two basketball coaches. The, both of them were my math teachers. Mr. Reese, Mr. Sapansky. I remember them very vividly. They were the kindest men I knew. They invested in me. Uh, they kind of knew where, where I was coming from in life, that I didn't have a lot of help, you know, going on there. And they helped me a lot. And they would stay with me after basketball practice, and we'd play horse. 
and mess around and just, you know, they would just talk with me and joke with me. And both of them did this. Both coaches did this. They didn't have to do that. I love basketball and I respected them because they were basketball coaches and, and they taught one of my favorite subjects at the time, which was math. And so they were like instrumental in my life. They probably never even knew how instrumental they were and how life-giving that was for me as an experience. It was just a small thing to do, amen? Sometimes small things make a big splash. It doesn't take that much. We just have to be willing to do these small things. Can you name a friend who helped you through a difficult time? Most of us can. Can you name someone who taught you something worthwhile, just an associate, a friend, a wife, a husband, you know, a child, a, a, a grandparent? who just taught you something that was super worthwhile. See, the people who make the most difference in our lives are not the most credentialed people, not the most famous people, not the people with all the letters after their names. Usually the people that make the most difference in our life are the ones who invested in us in small ways just simply because they love us. Amen? That is, that is the most significant thing that usually happens uh, to us. I love a quote of Mother Teresa. She said this, We can do no great things, only small things with great love. We can do all this. The good news is you can do this. Amen? I can do this. This is not something we can't do. We have to understand what it means to be poor in spirit and all of that poverty of spirit, be willing to give whatever we have, the small way we have in, in sacred service uh, to our God. And so here's the God factor. God takes that which is given to him and he just multiplies it. God takes that which is given to him and he multiplies that. And I, I, I want to say it this way. God delights in making our little into a lot. So, let me ask you this question. Is God humbling you in some way? I'm going to stop right there. Is God humbling you in some way? Frequently, I've been humbled. Have you been humbled? Sometimes I say people have the ministry of humbling me. That's what they like to do. You ever have that thought process happen to you? Yeah. Initially, I don't usually do very well with that. How about you? Initially, sometimes I get angry. But sometimes if you just stand back and say, okay, God, they're your instrument for humbling me so that I understand what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what, what's good about it. It helps me to understand I have to depend on Christ. And it's not about me, it's about him, amen? And so sometimes humbling is God's instrument to getting us to understand what it means to be poor in spirit. I think, honestly, Jesus did that with his disciples in the feeding of the 5,000. He was just letting them be humbled a little bit. Letting them experience their inadequacy. Letting them experience their utter insufficiency so that he can show himself to be mighty and strong on their behalf. Do you see the connection between being poor in spirit and a life well, well lived? It's, 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 it's not what you're going to hear out in the world. Being poor in spirit is not something that's going to be promoted in the world. But if you're going to live a well-lived life, you're going to be one who understands helplessness and inadequacy and dependency upon Jesus Christ. I was reading several articles here recently on LED light bulbs, just because I'm old. Um, and it, it, it's amazing the amount of energy that they really can save. I, I kind of like stuff like this, and I like to research it a little bit. Nobody else usually really cares, but you're a captive audience, so you have to listen to me for a moment. But I was reading about how much energy this is saving us nationwide, and then therefore how much less pollution's happening, 
and all those kind of things, you know. And it's kind of amazing, mind-blowing, staggering large amounts of, of money here. Uh, the average household, if it just converts over to LED, supposedly saves $1,000 in 10 years. You might not think that's a lot until you multiply it by, you know, a few hundred million. Right? And energy costs. And I'm, I know this much. LEDs don't save you a nickel if they burn out ahead of time. Which they did when they first came out. But they seem to be getting better at it. And so what I see there are small things, small investments can have a big impact. That's what, that's what we've we got to understand here. Uh, uh, that, that's part of this poor in spirit. Small investments by my part into the kingdom of God. If it's multiplied by a thousand people over, all of us doing it can have what? A huge impact. Amen? A huge impact. In the Old Testament book of Zechariah, there's an insightful thought shared on small things. Zechariah is this prophet of encouragement. And during his time, they were rebuilding the temple. And they were having some people rise up against the temple rebuilding, saying it's not going to happen. It was discouraging people and all that kind of thing. And Isaiah, or excuse me, Zechariah says in chapter 4, verse 10, who despises the day of small things? And he's saying to the people, don't get discouraged. This is going to happen. It's going to begin in small things and small ways. And then he goes on to say this. Um, Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the builder. Don't you love that name? Zerubbabel? I mean, it's a great name. just kind of rolls off the tongue. But anyway, so they said, you're going to rejoice when you see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel because that means it's beginning. And I, I don't know how many of you have done construction projects. I've done quite a few of them in my life. The first thing you do is, is a lot of measuring and laying out and all that kind of, and it's small. It's small. It's not doing much. But man, you're getting excited because what? That small beginning can result in a great, great, great big build. Amen something fantastic can happen. And so it, 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 small things uh, given to God are often the beginning of something big. So we have to become people who think of what could be. What small act is God asking you to use to serve him? Because we can all do small acts of service for God that can make a great impact on our community. And so the praise team is going to come out now. We're going to end with a song and then uh, a special prayer time for our very special couple for us. But here's some things you can do, small things you can do. Write a note of encouragement to somebody. Man, don't, don't ever underestimate the power of an encouraging word. Just help a neighbor. When they're doing something, my neighbor, I just brought my generator over to him and said, do you want to use this for a couple hours? Well, they're going to say, no, their food's rotting in the fridge. Just turn it on for a couple hours. It's such a small act. When someone shares a troubling situation, pray for them. If they won't pray with you on the spot, you make it a point to pray for them. Just pray for them. When someone's angry, respond with a soft answer. Toughest one probably there is. Because you want, in your righteous indignation, to set them in their place. Respond back with a soft answer. Really listen to somebody's story. Really show interests. Make it a point to compliment, 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 thank, 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 encourage, encourage, encourage people. Make it a point to do that over and over. If you have kids, constantly encourage them. It doesn't have to be false bravado stuff. Encourage them. Encourage them in the walk in Jesus. Encourage them when you see them doing something right. Say, way to go. Just encourage it. Encourage, encourage, encourage all the time. End each day this way. This has been life-changing for me lately because I'm, I struggle with some depression. Anybody have that problem? I end each day by saying, okay, God, thank you for this good day. 
Thank you for your benefit to me. Thank you for your multiple blessings that I don't even know how to articulate. Thank you that I have another day of breath in my lungs and life to live. Thank you for my wonderful family, my, my wonderful wife, and my great kids. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know why that's so important? Because God works in the small things, and thankfulness just sets us up to be in the place where God can work mightily in our lives. Amen.